I have said before, we're dealing with this uh, idea here called the four great questions, and you know them by now, I think. And in kind of reflexing, re, re, reflexing? No, reflecting, <laughs> reflecting on this, um, it's been more apparent to me, at least in my own thinking, that, um, you know, these four great questions, is there a God? If there is a God, what is this God like? That's really important because that's where we begin to consider when things happen in our world, what is this God like? And the third one, then, what does this God expect of me? Or in other words, what is required of a relationship with this God? And then finally, what we're on this last one, what, what, what can we expect? Really, what can we anticipate or believe that God can or will do uh, for us? Uh, and so the idea of questions, um, I have a friend who's from Canada. Uh, I don't completely trust him, but he's from Canada. But... <laughs> I'm always afraid they're going to come in here and make us change the metric system. That's my great fear. <clears throat> I, I'm, I have trouble with math to begin with. Don't put the metric system on me now. <clears throat> but he has this marvelous statement when he says, he says, in America, you guys have what you call question and answer time. Whenever they, somebody makes a presentation. He said this, in Canada, we think more of it question and response. I like that. It, 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 the questions uh, may actually lead to more questions. The, the, the question and the response may lead to further discussion instead of thinking, well, every question I want to have an answer. I think about children. You know, Jesus said, unless you become as a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And you think about that, you know, I, I, when I was working this out, I thought, okay, in this matter of questions, maybe that's why children learn so much is they ask so many questions, right? Moms, on Mother's Day, do you remember what's the favorite question your kids ask you? What? Why? That's Texas. Why? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, why? How come? Uh, you know, uh, why does he get to do that and I don't? And it's just a series of being bombarded with questions. And yet, part of that is that kids are learning and they're growing. And they have lots of questions because they don't think they have all the answers. I wonder about that in our own life if we have somehow as adults perhaps stopped growing or stopped developing or stopped our ability to be in the kingdom because we don't ask enough questions. We, we've sort of settled everything down. We've sort of made everything stop and then ask questions. I, Becky and I, she, she's been such a good influence on me. Uh, if you, you should have seen me before her. It was not good. <clears throat> a couple of people in this room have seen me before that, and they will testify to that, but they better stop right now. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things that I watch about Becky is whenever we're in conversation with people, when people say things, generally in our conversations, it makes me think of something I want to say. Imagine that, huh? <clears throat> with Becky, because she's such a, a learner and caring about people, I, I watch her all the time. Somebody will say something, and Becky will follow it with another question. And I think, man, I'd like to learn how to do that someday, you know? So she's helping me. <clears throat> yeah. I, I, you know, uh, first time we were trying to work on this, we were at a, a dinner party, and, and we're sitting there, and, and somebody had said something, and, and I'm, you know, kind of making a statement, and Becky puts her hand on my knee. And I went. <laughs> and she goes... <clears throat> I mean, I thought she was being romantic or something, you know. I thought she was being nice there for a second. She's going, no. That's the signal to ask a question <laughs> or to let somebody else talk. But, but this whole thing about 
the questions, the, the issue about are we the kind of people that are willing to live with the questions? Soren Kierkegaard, a great philosopher who was really, uh, uh, if you will, I mean, hard on the church in, in, uh, in Denmark and hard on people that had sort of developed this kind of, of uh, intellectual arrogance where he said life is always much better lived, not dealing with the answers, but dealing with the questions. Life is, life is always much better dealt with by living with the questions and not always having all the answers. And so these questions we've been asking, I, I want to, again to say to you that I think they can invigorate our life. They, they help us to begin to say, what are the questions? What, what are the issues that are at hand? Instead of suggesting that we have to now have some accumulated knowledge that all of a sudden now we know everything. All of a sudden now we're able, if you will, to have an answer for everyone. Maybe instead of having an answer just have a response. So we've been looking at this and what can we expect from God? And I said this uh, whole section in Romans 8, if you're there, in Romans 8, where it really begins in 26, there are all three members of the Trinity that are referred to. In verse 27, it is, uh, verse 26, the Spirit that's uh, mentioned. In verse 28, God, I'm suggesting that has to do with the notion of the Father. And then in verse 35, Christ is uh, referred to. And I've said uh, on several occasions, I just keep showing you this icon. This is a very famous icon of the Trinity, Ribelev's uh, icon. And that uh, icon isn't something we just try to pick apart or try to understand every detail of it. But we sort of, the, the whole idea is for you to enter into the picture, to sort of enter in that that, that God, what can we expect from God is that God in the Trinity, all three members of the Trinity are participating, involved in our experience with him. To me, that's really good news, that the Trinity is involved, if you will, in this experience of our life. All three members, the Spirit, the Father, and the Son, that they are participating, that they are involved, that they are, if you will, engaged uh, in our experience and in our life, and we can expect uh, that we have their presence and their participation. I'll say again, I, I said this a couple of weeks, but this has really been working on my brain, <clears throat> which right now after finals and uh, classes is pretty small. <laughs> I got students, well, stop that. <clears throat> uh, this idea of the Trinity, that God is love because God is Trinity. Not because of us, but because of God. That God is love because God was God before there was creation. God was God before there was any creation. And these three members of the Trinity are participating in deferential love with one another. And that's why we, I would say, can say that God is love. Not God is loving. God is love. Because that's the integral interrelationship between the members of the Trinity. If you're interested in this, this is what we call the imminent Trinity. Imminent Trinity. That this notion of what is the inner life of God like. What is the inner life of God like? It is these three members in deferential love to one another, loving one another, participating in that life together before there was ever a creation. To me, that helps me understand God is not loving God is not capable of love. God is love. The, the universe that he created is now the one that can participate. 
And so we understand this, if you will, the Trinity. So we've said, here we go. The Spirit is praying for us. We've already talked about that. We've already discussed that. That's on your outline. The Spirit is praying for us. And I said this great statement by Karl Barth that God himself, or God makes himself our advocate with himself. Isn't that interesting? God, God makes himself our advocate with himself. There's no having to ask God to be our advocate or ask God to be concerned about us or ask God to, to intercede for us. It is. You might want to just, uh, for a note, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, when John writes these words when he says, I write these things to you that you sin not. But if anyone sin, this is what's important, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous, who is not only the propitiation for our sins, but for the propitiation of the whole world. We have an advocate. We don't have to go get one. We don't have to ask for one. We don't have to plead for one. We don't have to twist God's arm for one. John says, we have an advocate. Christ Jesus, the righteous. So the Spirit's praying for us. The second we looked at here, and this is where we're going back again, the Father is purposing for us. Look at verse 28. And we know... And in the, in the original language, it's interesting, and the, the order is, I think, uh, important. We looked at this last week. And we know that to those who love God, all things are working together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. The, the, the order is important. Now, the New American Standard, the ESV does a good job here translating that. New American Standard just tries to clean it up a little bit. But it literally, in the, in the original languages, and we know... To those who love God, he is working all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. I want to try to unpack that second phrase here today. I, I told you last week, I've been a little slow, but in the work by Martin Lloyd-Jones, I don't agree with everything he's, he wouldn't agree with everything I say, but in his commenting on these two verses, 20, 28 to 30, he devotes 208 pages to that. So give me a break. <laughs> Some not smart aleck texted me last week and said, Cliff, you're on page 186. <laughs> I'm not going to give you his, I'll just give you his initials, Wayne Bullenbacher. But <clears throat> was that not his initials? The Father's purposing. Watch this. <clears throat> and we know that to those who love God, and I, I mean, if you want to listen to it last week, I, did, I made the point that one of the things about American religion, it appears, that what seems to be more important than anything is knowledge and understanding instead of love to God. And we call that moralistic therapeutic deism. It's rampant in the church in America today. And this idea here is that this promise of God's work is to those who love him, to those who love him. And we looked at, you can listen to that if you want to uh, from last week. Uh, so to those who love him. So we're looking here, if you will, who are the participants in this purpose? Number one, those who love God. Already dealt with that. <clears throat> who are the participants in this God's purposing? Who are the, these are the people that are able to participate in this purposing. Those who love God. And we uh, discussed that. <clears throat> now, I, I want to look at this here in the New American or the English Standard when it says this. And we know that God is, and we know that to those who love God, God is working all things for their good to those who are called according to his purpose. 
So I want to say the second piece here is not only for those who love God, but those who are called according to His purpose. That's the promise there, that, that this is here. Now notice how that breaks up, if you will, in ESV. For we know that to those who love God, He is working all things together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. Now let me, if you're reading the ESV, uh, that's how it reads, or others, let me make a suggestion here. Those two phrases are broken apart. For we know that to those who love God, here's the, God is working all things together for their good for those who are called according to His purpose. I'm going to ask you to think. I'm going to ask some questions today. Uh, is that a separate thing to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose? Are those separate? The conjunction there for, and if you need to go back, that, go back and watch Sesame Street, junk, uh, conjunction, junction, what's its function? I don't know. We're deep here. We're deep here. If you're visiting, we're deep. We're deep. We, Sesame Street teaches us our grammatical matters. But, but, but the word for there as a conjunction suggests that it's connecting these two clauses. I, I want to ask you to consider something. Instead of those being two separate, that, that this promise of purposing that God is working together for good, it's not just to those who love God. And the second piece is those who are called according to his purpose. What if, what, what if those are coordinate clauses to say, in other words, and there's a term in Greek we use, I won't bore you with that. In other words, it's those who love God, those are the ones who are called according to his purpose. What is God's purpose? To love him. To love him. That God's purpose for your life and my life is not to work for him, is to not fear him, to not, to not to stay out of his way, that, that God's purpose is for us to love him. And again, we dealt with that a good bit last week. I'll say to you again, this isn't just some demand. This isn't God just saying, love me. You know, when I was growing up in church, I had the notion, I'm going to love God even if it kills me. And it about did. But, but this notion is that God's purpose for human beings is for us to be in a relationship of love with him. Not just simply an idea of knowledge and understanding but that our lives would be characterized. So I, I'm just suggesting it could be that these are two things. One is that, that God is working for, get together for good, those who love God, and those also who are called according to his purpose. Or it can be if this conjunction is operating the way I think it is. It is that God is working together for good to those who love God, who are called to God's purpose, which relates to loving God. I just leave that for your consideration. I, I'm not going to follow my sword on this, but to suggest that there might be, if you will, something going on there. It could be, again, that the idea is that these things are working out because these people are living according to God's purpose. But what is God's purpose? Is it just to work you to death? Is God's purpose for your life and my life just to get us involved in ministry? Is God's purpose in life for us just to be of some value? You know, I, I heard a guy say one time, uh, uh, he was reflecting on a friend, and he, or a friend said this to him. He said, I just want to be a tool in God's hands. And my friend said, I reject that idea. 
How many of you like to be used by somebody else? <laughs> just be a tool. How many of us like to say, boy, I just want God to use me? You know, I, I don't have many tools. I think I have a screwdriver. I have speed dial at my house for that. Because when I get way past my pay grade on what to work on. I don't have a relationship with that screwdriver. If you did, you'd know I'd have some problems. I, I don't have a relationship with a tool. I, I, I'm just asking you to consider something here. That, that God is purpose for our life is not that we just become productive or that we just become useful. I think people that love God are useful. I think they just out of some sort of way that it just occurs. But I'm thinking in my own mind, at least, that I grew up in a tradition that made me think that what God mostly wanted from me was to work and be productive. And a lot of people, I think, as they get older, which is happening to me, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday. He said my gray hair made me look distinguished. I didn't appreciate that. <clears throat> He's bald, and I said, well, your hair is extinguished, so try that one. Come on if you want to run with a big dog on the porch here. <clears throat> yeah, in Jesus' name. <clears throat> but, you know, we think as you get older and you get more distinguished and you get more useful, you know, I know people, I have friends, who because they thought that the purposes of God was for them to be productive, when they retired, or they weren't able to be productive anymore, they crashed emotionally. Why? I'm not productive anymore. It creates competition. If I got to be, I got to be more productive, you know, than Chris, or I got to be more productive than this person or that person. Why? I got to be competitive because that's what God called me to. So I ask you to consider something. What God called us to is a life of love for Him and to Him, not production. You, you, you don't believe me? Just look here, real quick. Turn to your, take a right in Romans, and. Uh, if you, if you want to look at this later, you can. Uh, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to kind of jump in here. <clears throat> no, I'm not. I'm going to start at verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. That in everything you were enriched in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed among you. That you were not lacking in any gift. And watch this. Gifts and abilities and strengths. Eagerly waiting the revelation of Jesus Christ who will confirm you end to the end blameless in the day of our Lord. God is faithful to whom you were called into fellowship with His Son. Notice that. What did God call you to? What's your calling? What did He call you to? Fellowship. Not a tool. Not to be useful. He called us into fellowship. Now, usefulness, or if you will, the ability to do things out of the right motive and the right heart, certainly happens. But it's not the purpose of our life to be useful, to be helpful. Some of us are doing a great job with that, but... We, we, we've got to figure this out. 
that, that what can we expect from God? He's working things out for those who are called to His purpose. That doesn't mean just get busy and get to work. It, it, it doesn't mean to just be active. Because I'm, I want to tell you again, I, for, for many of us, we already know this. Maybe as we approach, as we get older, and you know, I've, I've had to say no more this year than I've ever had because my energy level is, is less. And, and I've, I've thought, you know, there'll be a day when somebody will say, uh, Cliff, uh, the exit's right over here. <laughs> you know, comes all the time. Are you ready for that? Is my relationship with God defined by being useful, purposeful? So I, 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 just, I just give that to you there to suggest maybe it is two things. Maybe there are two independent clauses there that God, we know that to those who are loving God, he is working all things for their good to those who are called according to his purpose. So you love God and you're called to his purpose. Okay. But I want to suggest that his purpose is bigger than just getting busy. Jerry? Yeah. <clears throat> That's good. Yeah. He said, I know your works. I know your actions. You're busy all the time. You ought to go read that to do great things. But I got this with you. You've left your first love. He said, I know your deeds. They're great. I know your action. You're working hard. You're doing great in terms of activity. The problem is you've lost the love motivation. Uh, Revelation chapter 3. <clears throat> yeah, Revelation. Thank you, Jerry. That's a good reminder. See, this is a smart class. See? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> And there are a couple of smart Alex in here too, so just <laughs> be careful if you're new today. Be careful. Uh, so right, so, so, so this notion, if you will, of, of God's purpose, I just want to lay that out to you. I, I'm going I'm to uh, suggest it. You, you go study it, look at it all you want to. But I know in my judgment, this is a pretty tightly organized argument. So, and we know that God causes for all those who love God, all things to work together for good, to those who are called according to his purpose. Okay? Now, <clears throat> here's the good or the purpose. I think I got this. Who knows? Here's the content <clears throat> of this love relationship. What he says right here is that um, he's working for our what? What's the word? Good. Working for our good. <clears throat> uh, it's my judgment uh, that Paul does not write things, especially in his epistles. He doesn't write these things and make a statement and then say, well, Cliff, just kind of figure that out. Uh, because, I mean, this verse is used all kinds of crazy ways, isn't it? <clears throat> I mean, I, you know, it, it, you just, you, you get people to say something that is inherently bad is good. Well, you know, you got this terrible disease, but you know, God is working all things good. Wait a minute. Hold on here just a second. Now, I'm going to be a little upset on that to say, hold it. Because you've got to define the good that God is working toward. This, this Greek term, this matter of good, means something that is morally or ethically good. I mean, we've had all kinds of things happen to us that aren't good. It doesn't say everything that happens to you is good. It doesn't say that everything that occurs in the world is good. You know, I mean, I've heard people say, and I know they're trying to comfort people in difficult times. But we say things that we shouldn't be saying. 
some terrible thing happens, some, some sorrowful event has happened, and we say, well, you know, God's working all things together for your good. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't, I don't think it's a good idea to say this bad thing that's happened should now be just baptized that it's good. Let, let, let's look at it. Let's deal with it. And let's agree this thing is bad. Watch this, though. But it does suggest that God is somehow going to work it for good. In the, in the original language, this idea that it says God is working to make it, to make it good. He sees it. He, he grieves over it. He understands it. How it's happened that God is working for good. Now, I, this, this word here, or this idea, is good. Uh, I don't think this means, because we've got a pro- proper noun there, that God is the one who's working. I don't think we say to people, well, you know, everything works out in the end. Yeah, but it's not always good. This isn't some general principle of the universe that somehow everything comes back to good. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying there's a personal, powerful God at the center of this universe who's saying to those people who love him and those who are in that purposeful life, he's going to work it for good. Not that it is good. He's going to work it to good. Now, I've never crocheted, but I read something on the internet, so it's got to be true. Um, You think about it this way. Uh, This person made this illustration that their mother crocheted and, you know, did stuff like that. And he said that when he watched his mother crochet all these beautiful designs and all these, you know, things and stuff like that, uh, that what he noticed was that on the underside of that thing, it looked crummy, <laughs> ragged, naughty, you know, <clears throat> all that kind of stuff. Different colors of, of, of thread <clears throat> that were through there that on the backside looked crummy. And he said to his mom, well, he's kind of a little kid looking up, said, what are you doing while I'm crocheting? Well, it looks terrible. Probably didn't say it exactly like that, but, <clears throat> you know. Um, And she said, well, you need to see the other side here. Now, that might be an illustration here of the idea that God takes those difficult things, takes those darker strings, takes those difficult events, and as we love him and know we're called into a relationship with him, he somehow makes it good. But I don't think Paul leaves it at that. Here's here's what I want to say, the content of this good. I put this up here for some reason. I'm trying to remember. I have it in my notes, don't I? Yeah. Here we go. Um, You moms, I'll read this. I I should probably read this, huh? You You moms know the good that comes out when you have a child. But you also know all of that up on the upfront side of it is not always good. It's called pregnancy. <clears throat> it's called being hot all the time, you know. Remember? <clears throat> it's called pain. There is in that process. Then when you deliver this child, all of a sudden what happens? It goes away. I, I have a friend that when she was in childbirth, she said to her husband, Don't you ever touch me again? <laughs> That was pain. 
But, uh, but as moms on Mother's Day here, you, you, you know, you remember, that wasn't good. It wasn't fun. It wasn't enjoyable all the time. But somehow through all of that process, here you see this mother and this child of this incredible experience now of good that's come. What's that like with God? Let me suggest it here. This is not Paul. Paul does not leave things hanging. What, what is the good that God is up to? To conform us to the image of his son. Notice right here when he says, for those whom he knew, according to his purpose, for those whom he knew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's saying for the recording that that Joseph in the Old Testament might be a good example of this, where a lot of bad things happened to him. But because he trusted God, he relied on God, he didn't give up, God was able to work good for that. Yeah. And I don't mean to be flippant about this. Uh, I, I just don't think that Paul has in his mind that the good is health and wealth and strength and advancement and all these kind of things. I think he's got this nailed down here to say, I want to tell you what the good is that God is working toward to conform you and me to make us more like his son. And actually, if you think about it, what else could be better than that in this sense that we live in relationship with God, in this loving, caring relationship as His children of God who are like His Son, Jesus. This has helped me. I'll just tell you back here again. I'm using some uh, prepositions here in verse 29. Because He says He's working the good, all those who love God, call according to His purpose, for. Here's the evidence. I told you before, the word for typically suggests support and evidence. You've got something that's been declared. You've got some result, some effect that is now being stated or supported. Here's the example. Remember, Jesus loves me. This I know. There's the effect or the result. How do I know that? For the Bible tells me so. So we've been, if you will, he's working all things together for good to those who love God and call his word because or for those whom he foreknew he predestined to become children or conformed to the image of his son. Is that good? Is that good? Yeah, <clears throat> but I don't think we've thought about this a lot. Um, I want to ask you to go to another passage here to say, you know, I, a friend of mine was having some trouble one time and a former church I pastored, and he said to me, I just, I don't, I, don't, I don't know why some of these things are happening. I said, well, you prayed a stupid prayer. That's why I'm not a pastor anymore. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't do that well. I said, well, prayed a stupid prayer. He said, well, I said, you prayed, oh, God, make me like Jesus. How stupid. You really want that? Look over here. Go to your table of contents. Find the book of Hebrews. Uh, there are some verses in here in the book of Hebrews about Jesus. I would not believe if it wasn't in the Bible. I, I'm serious. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 5. <clears throat> I wouldn't believe this. 
But it's in the Bible. In chapter 5 of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, this is about Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death and was heard because of his piety. Or that, That's kind of an older word of godliness. And although he's his son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Watch this. In having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey in the source of eternal salvation. What? Jesus was made perfect. The Greek word teleos means complete, full grown, fully developed. It's, it's often used, uh, all over, it's used all over the New Testament. You know, people say, well, no, 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 you know, you can't be perfect. Really? There are seven places in the New Testament that call for it. Matthew 5, you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right? 2 Corinthians 7, everyone, these promises, let us uh, put away all the sin of, of flesh and, and perfecting holiness in the reverence of God. Philippians 3 that says, as many of us as are perfect, let us continue to maintain the standard of teaching. You know, it's all over the place. I mean, I, it's hard to imagine why people say that at times. Because the, the, the word perfect is there all over the place. It means complete, full grown, grow up. Hebrews 6 that says, let us now put away the things of the past, the childish things, and let us go on to perfection. Not laying again a foundation of uh, ABCs. So, so the idea of Jesus being perfect means there's a completion that's going on here. There's a fullness that's happening here that he's experiencing that I would say he never knew as God. God never knew what it was to suffer like this as a human being. So what was it, if you will, that we could take from this to say, if I'm going to be conformed to the image of Jesus, there may be some suffering involved. There may be. In fact, I would say there is. <clears throat> Because we live in this fallen world and we live among fallen relationships and people. And suffering is not an indication God's mad at you. Or suffering is not an indication that we've done something wrong. It's an indication that we live in a fallen world that brings us to the point of understanding that God is still able to work in the midst. How many of you would say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get, how, many, how many of you would say, hey, you know what? I became a more compassionate person I became a more thoughtful person because of some of the things that I went through and suffered. Anybody with me? Yeah. Yeah. That's why I tell my 18-year-old students, I say to them, nobody's going to listen to you when you go in the ministry. Now, they just paid $24,000 for that. Again, I don't always have good ideas. Nobody's going to listen to you until you've suffered. I'm not saying let's go suffer. I'm not saying, listen, it'll find you, okay? Don't go looking for it. <laughs> you don't have to go looking for suffering. You don't have to go find, hey, I need to suffer some today. No, no, don't do that. Don't do that. It'll find you because we live in a fallen world. But somehow God in his abilities and power are able to take those things and say, you know what, Cliff, you'll trust me. You'll be with me. I'll work this for good. 
I was teaching a Sunday school class some time ago, and I was in seminary. I just remembered this right now because I can't remember anything else. Uh, and there was a person in our, in our Sunday school class had a parent that was dying from heart disease. I mean, really, really close to the end. And so as a consequence, we called for prayer. And I just said, would, would somebody pray for our friend? Now, a friend of mine, Jane, whose dad was dying from heart disease, first person up. Why? She knew. She experienced it. See, this is not phony, baloney, good time rock and roll stuff. This is there are real things that happen and Jesus suffered and we will too. But the good news is that God is working to make that good for you. And it's not good. It doesn't mean your 401k is going to do better. It doesn't mean you're going to get well. It doesn't mean I'm going to get well. It doesn't mean I'm going to get more, more success. Whatever. It means I'm going to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God's up to. He may not, you, you, you may not get a bigger house. You may not get a bigger car. You may not get a better job. Your kids may still drive you crazy for a while. You, you, none of, all of that may still be happening because that's God's plan. What he's doing is he's trying to conform you to the image. Of, now, let me say it again. Not everything that happens is good. God, that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying, oh, well, praise the Lord. God, I'm, I'm sick. Praise the Lord. No, that's silly. It's to say that in the midst of this, God is able to work good. Let me tell you, I think, Doug, I, I'll tell you what I think. You don't have to agree with it. When I look back on my life, when you look back on your life, the good you're going to be looking for is my life more like Jesus. That's what you're going to be looking for. Not did I get sick, not did I get over this illness, not did I get a better house or did I have more money, but did my life, did it count, did it work, did God, was I open to God working in my life to where, you know what, I'm becoming more like Jesus. That's going to be the good you're looking at. That's going to be the good your kids are going to be looking at. Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, looking more like Jesus. Doug, for some of you that may not know, Doug was on a cruise ship and started hemorrhaging. I mean, like dying hemorrhaging. Uh, Carol had punched him in the nose for something he'd said, and it just couldn't stop the bleeding. It was much more, it was much more serious than that. And and had to be medevaced off the ship and couldn't figure out what was going on. And we prayed, and we've prayed before, and people have not gotten well. But Doug got well, and it wasn't good to go through that. It wasn't fun to go through that. It wasn't enjoyable to go through that. But God has brought good out of that. In Doug's life and the life of others. See, this isn't, this isn't American religion here. You get a better job, you get a better car, you get a bigger house. It's that God is up to something really big. And that is to conform you to the image of his son. That's where God's working. That's how he's working. He's, he's in those situations in life, he's saying to you and me, hey, trust me, look to me, have confidence in me. I can work this out. It may not be on your timetable. It may not be the way you want it. But, but, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work it out. God is working for our good. Yes. Yeah. Beg for the recording has been diagnosed, had diagnosed with brain cancer, been fighting that battle. 
My brother's wife died at 57 on the 6th of April. Loved Jesus. Was a, was a fantastic follower of Jesus. And to the very end, she trusted him. Looked him, didn't understand it. Didn't, didn't, didn't understand what was going on. Um, but the good that was being accomplished was Lottie was becoming more dependent, more reliant on Jesus. And I guarantee you that's what she's thankful for right now in the presence of God. So Paul is not trying to avoid the issues. He, he did, again, he didn't say everything that happens to you is good. I'm afraid for us, you know, I'm afraid for me that I think we sort of wash this into our American Christianity that we think that if we follow Jesus, everything's going to be good. <clears throat> now, you know, this is a tough thing, tension here for me because I don't want people to just sort of Im like, so go looking for suffering or go look and not believe that God does some great things for us. We're all, we've all got testimonies about that. But I think it is a corrective for us to understand what is God really, what can I expect from him? I mean, I know people that their faith has come unglued because they thought they could expect that they would always be healed. They would always do better. They would always get a better job. Nobody would ever take advantage of them because they're godly people and they're doing the right thing. And it just craters them. Why? They never ask the question, what can I really expect from God? I mean, I, I'm thankful for all the blessings. I've, and I've enjoyed so many and I'm thankful for them and I want to keep them coming, you know. But I have to face this notion that, that what the content of what good is has got to be defined. Paul is not letting you fill that out on your own. He's saying, here it is. Think, think about the early Christians. I mean, many of them. And, and in other parts of the world, I mean, the American Christian experience is so uncommon to the rest of the world. You guys, some of you, a lot of you have traveled and you know the pressure and the struggle and the strain that godly people are under, that follow Jesus. The American Christian experience is almost an, an outlier to what it's really like around the world. And the, the, the notion here of us just to lean into this to say, God, help me to participate and be involved with what you've called me to as a life of love, that's your purpose for me, and that your good is you're working out for me, is that I'm becoming more like Jesus. That's what you can expect. I don't know how God's going to do it in your life. He may do it in some really pain-free ways, or he, he may deal with it in some, some ways that uh, none of us would ever choose. Let, let me give you one more thing here real quick. <clears throat> this other thing that the good that God is up to is to have a family. Notice what he says. <clears throat> and I know some of you theology nerds in here, you're hung up. I'll come back later <clears throat> on predestined and all that stuff. <clears throat> I know theology nerds are out here. <clears throat> He said, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Why? So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What does God want? Workers? An army? What does he want? A family. A family. In fact, that's the message of the Bible. When God <clears throat> decided he was going to rescue the world, he sent a family named Abraham. He said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing to all the world. 
God has always wanted a family. I want to tell you something. This is so unusual. I don't have time to unpack this. <clears throat> this is so unusual in the ancient Near East. That's what we call the area of Mesopotamia like that. If you read the accounts in ancient literature, the, uh, the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh and all these other boring stories, that <laughs> they're hard to read. <clears throat> the gods always want people to be their slaves. That's the language. The gods of the ancient Near East want slaves to serve them, to get them what they want. And this is common of both the Sumerian, the Mesopotamian, even the Greek and the Roman gods. This God with Abraham beginning and working throughout the life of Jesus is the notion that this God literally wants a family to be together. A family of many people who are like Jesus. Notice this. He said, I'm gonna ha- you're going to be the first of many children. I'm going I'm to stop with this, but I'll tell you something. There's a fascinating thing in the Old Testament that God takes Israel to task over. You go read these later. It's, called, it's in Jeremiah 23, 27 and Hosea 2, 16. It's this notion that God wants a family. He called Israel my son, right? Israel my son. Do you know what God says in these two verses? And there are other places. You know what he was upset with? He said, he said I am up, I'm going to translate. I'm upset with Israel because they've forgotten my name and called me Baal. You probably heard it, Baal. It says that, Jared. You, they've forgotten my name and they call me Baal. In Hosea says that, you, 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 you call me Baal. You know what Baal means? Lord. You know what he says? I don't want you calling me that. I want you to call me my husband. It's a family, not a monster. It's a family. He says, don't. You Listen, Baal is just an Aramaic name. It just means Lord. That's all it means. We've associated it with the Mesopotamian god, Baal. But it just means Lord. He's saying, don't you dare call me that. When I read that years ago, whoa, wait a minute. This has got to be a contextual variant somewhere. Theology nerd. Because um, it can't mean that. But it does. That God is saying to the people, I don't want you calling me Lord. What did Jesus tell us to call him? Father, Abba, Daddy. See, see, this idea, God wants a family. What can you expect from him? You can expect from him to extend to you and to me an entrance into a family. So here's what I want to ask you to do this week. <clears throat> At least consider, by the way, I hope you went around and touched your foundation of your house. That was the application last week. Your neighbors probably think you're nuts, but, <clears throat> you know, you did the right thing. Here's what I want you to think about. How is Jesus, or how is God, the Father here, helping you to learn to be more like Jesus in these areas? Let me just say, how is the Father helping you to learn to be like Jesus in your area of dependence? In your area of dependence upon Him. Are you getting, is there an increasing sense of more dependence on Jesus? Is it more or less? Is it more that you, you now are much more aware of my dependence? Number two, how is God conforming you to his son in learning to live a life of love to others? 
Are you seeing that as more important maybe than having the right answer? But, but maybe now it's more important for you to say, how can Jesus help me learn to live a life of love? Third, real quick, we've got to go. I know I'm keeping you on. How are you growing in conformity to Jesus? In prayer. In prayer. To where my life is, is more prayerful than it's been. So, so that independence, love, and prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, people really need to hear from you, not me. They, re- they really need to sense the truth from you, not me. So strike whatever I've said that is not true. Drive only what is true from you into our hearts. And help us have a clear understanding of what we can really expect from you. Not only this week, but in our life. Thank you again for this privilege. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.